Tonight I want us to turn to a Christmas passage that we usually don't think of as a Christmas passage, one that we don't usually read at Christmas, uh, but it's the passage from which we get the phrase that we so often use that Jesus was God made flesh. And it is John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, to be exact. This is one of those passages that teaches us uh, how it is that God became a man and came and lived in the world with us sinful men and women. It doesn't tell the story of Jesus' birth, but it do- does tell us uh, what the result was and what the whole point of it was. In the beginning was the Word. Now, Jesus is spoken of as the Word here. So when we see the Word, uh, John is speaking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. I just want briefly as we begin to highlight a couple of things that we saw last week in the book of Micah, as Micah prophesied about the coming of Jesus, we noted several things about Jesus and his coming. And I want to just remind you of two of those tonight. One is the deity of Jesus. We saw in Micah that Micah prophesied that this one who would come would be one whose goings forth were from long ago. From the days of eternity. And we said that could be none other than God. There was no one that existed in the days of eternity but God. And so we saw last week that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And here we see it again tonight, don't we? Verse 1, the end of the verse, the Word was God. That's plain enough. If we didn't get that, verse 3, he tells us again, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Who could that be when we compare this with Genesis 1 but God? Then verse 10, again, the second half of the verse, the world was made through him. So as we saw last week, we see again tonight, the wonder of Christmas is not just that Uh, A savior came into the world, but that that savior was God himself. And we applied that last week by saying that it was amazing to think that God would come and be born in a stable. But We also applied it by saying that if Jesus is God, then he has absolute lordship over our lives. He didn't just come to save us and befriend us. He also came to rule 
over us. And it's important that we mention Jesus' deity again tonight briefly because, as we've said before, this is under particular attack in our culture. Most of our culture doesn't want to believe what John 1 is saying. There are religious groups that uh, very, uh, in very sophisticated ways try to undermine this. And then there's just the average secular person who says Jesus couldn't have been God. He was just a great prophet and a great man. So you have the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the liberal Protestants, all of whom are uh, officially proclaiming Jesus was just a man. And then you have the average person that simply believes that that must be true. And if that is true, then the Bible is a lie. And if that is true, then the gospel falls on its face. Because if Jesus was a mere man, he has no authority to forgive us of our sins. Because who can forgive sins but God alone? And if Jesus is a mere man, he has no ability to forgive us for our sins because If he's a mere man, he has sins of his own that he must die for. And he cannot die in our place. So I just want you to notice in passing tonight another place in the Holy Scripture where Jesus is very clearly portrayed as God. Take your friends to this and show them that we can't ignore Jesus if the Bible is saying he really is God in the flesh. And last week we also uh, paid close attention not just to the loftiness of Jesus, the godness of Jesus, but also his lowliness. That he came and was made flesh. He became in the likeness of men. Verse 14, the word became flesh. We saw that last week again that he was born in Bethlehem of all places. And tonight we see it again and just in passing again tonight. Don't miss this Christmas the wonder that God himself, who is worshipped by the angels, became a human being in order to save us. As the Christmas carols, many of them remind us. One of them says, Jesus, Lord of all the world, coming as a child among us. That's Christmas. The one we quoted last week, child in the manger, infant of Mary, outcast and stranger, Lord of all. Or another one, word of the Father, As we read here, now in flesh appearing. Christmas is a great paradox that Jesus is both God and yet he humbled himself to become a man. That is what we remember at this time of year. And we remember also not only that the word was made flesh, but that the flesh that was made was nailed to a cross for our forgiveness. And again, if Jesus is not man, then he cannot die for our sins. So don't forget what Christmas is all about. This Christmas season. But beyond that, I want you to see something else from John chapter 1 that doesn't necessarily have to correlate only with our Christmas season. And that is this. I want you to notice verse 14 again that John says the word became flesh. Throughout this passage, Jesus is referred to as the word. The word became flesh. Verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Why does John continually call Jesus the Word in this passage? That's where I want us to hover for a little bit. Why is Jesus called the Word? Why doesn't he just say, in the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was God? Or in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God? Why does he call him the Word? Well, he explains in verse 18, doesn't he? No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he is has explained him. And when he uses the word God at the beginning of verse 18, he's talking about God the Father. No one has seen God the Father at any time. 
we've obviously seen God the Son. That's what he's been describing here. He's been saying Jesus is God and saying that he became flesh. Now he's saying no one has seen God the Father at any time. But God the Son was begotten and has explained God the Father to us so that Jesus could say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, the place you look is in the face of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 says it like this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. So why does John refer to Jesus as the word? Because Jesus is the place that you go to see the face of God most clearly. You go to the written word and you go to the living word if you want to know what God is like. Now, we need to be careful here because some people take this truth from John 1 that if you want to see God the Father, you look in the face of Jesus and they run with that and they run off a cliff with that so that they get rid of the written word. The argument goes something like this. If Jesus is the living word and if we see God most clearly in the face of Jesus, then all we need is Jesus, which is true. But here's where they go over the edge. And if all we need is Jesus, then this book isn't really as important as lots of people make it out to be. If all we need is Jesus, we don't need to join these Bible-thumping, fundamentalist-type people. We don't need to attach ourselves too rigidly to what this book says because it's really not about this book, it's about Jesus. Some of you may have heard stories about pastors who have even taken their Bible and walked over to the communion table and flopped the Bible on the table and said, this is just a book, but we don't worship a book. We worship Jesus. And what they're doing is saying, hey, If we can say that it's all about Jesus, then we can create Jesus in our own image and in our own mind and make him look like we want him to look and just throw out the Bible, which says a lot of things that we don't really like. So the fact that Jesus is the place where we most clearly see God, which is a fact, is used by some people either to ignore or to discount or to reinvent the Bible. And I hope you see the hollowness of all of that ranting that some people do. I hope that I wouldn't even have to explain to you what's wrong with that, but I'm going to anyway, and I'm going to hopefully give you some scriptural foundation for it. The Apostle John, if you turn to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle John wrote John 1, which we just read, and he also wrote 1 John 1, which we're about to read. If he heard these kind of arguments, that since Jesus is the place we most clearly see God, then we just need Jesus and we don't need to be so rigid about the Bible... If John heard that, he would have been shocked. He would have been absolutely shocked. Listen to what he says in verses 1 through 4 of 1 John 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Jesus. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These, excuse me, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. 
Now make no mistake, John just wrote in John chapter 1 that if we want to know God, we see Him most clearly in the living Word, the person of Jesus. And John gave his entire life to preaching about the person of Jesus. So John would be the last person to diminish or minimalize the person of Jesus. And yet, if we listen carefully to what he is saying here, he's saying we cannot have the person of Jesus unless we have the Bible. We cannot have the living word unless we have the written word. Listen to what he says in verse 1 again. What was from the beginning what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Now listen to verse 3. This is the key. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you catch what John is saying? He's saying we, the apostles, have seen Jesus, we have heard Jesus, we have touched Jesus. You have not. We, the apostles, are eyewitnesses, he's saying in verses 1 through 3. And by implication, you are not. Therefore, verse 3, we who are eyewitnesses proclaim to you who are not the word of life so that you who have not seen or heard Jesus in person may yet have fellowship with us and have fellowship with him at the same time. And how do we who have seen Jesus proclaim him to you who have not seen Jesus? Verse 4, in writing. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So here's a summary of what John is saying in verses 1 through 4. The only way that you may have eternal life is to have fellowship with Jesus Christ, the living word. But the only way that you may have fellowship with Jesus Christ, the living word, is through what the apostles have written, namely The written word. John had the distinct privilege, along with the other apostles and several people, uh, several other people that knew Jesus in the flesh, of being able to go to the living word without going through the written word. But since Jesus has ascended to heaven, we no longer have that privilege. And if we want to encounter the living Christ, we encounter him, John says, through the testimony of eyewitnesses who wrote these things so that our joy may be made complete. The written word is vital. If we don't have this book, we have nothing. That's why we had the Reformation in the 1500s. That's why a group of people started forming new churches outside of the Catholic Church. One of the main reasons was because in the Catholic Church they had lost the written word. It wasn't in the language of the people, so the average Joe Blow couldn't read it. And they had deviated from it so far that it was no longer being taught to the people. So that's why we are Protestants. We have churches that are centered around this book. This is why we should also bless God that we have the printing press. We live in an era where we can go to the corner store, we can go to Walmart if we need to, and find a Bible that we can read in our own language. And this is why, because we encounter the living word through the written word, that we need to pay in our services close attention to the public reading of Scripture. This is why we never have a service where we don't read some extended passage of Scripture, just so we can hear what God says. Not even what I say, interpreting what God says, but just hear what God says. 
And this is why, most of all, at least for tonight's purposes, each of you as individuals should long for the pure milk of the word of God. If you love Jesus, if you want to encounter Jesus and know eternal life, then you must encounter him through this book. And so Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, that we should long for the pure milk of the word like newborn babies long for their mother's milk. Our salvation is bound up in Jesus, who's the living word, but Jesus, for us who are not eyewitnesses, is bound up in the Bible, which is God's written word. And not just in the Gospels, not just in the New Testament. Jesus said that even the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, speak about him. So this whole book, all 66 books that are part of it, speaks about Jesus. And if you just kind of remember how things work around here, you know that every year at the end of the year, I have some sermon somewhere along the line encouraging you for the new year to pick up the Bible every day and have some sort of Bible reading plan that you're going to adopt for the new year. And tonight's that night. Tonight, I want to encourage you to have a time in 2007 every day, by God's grace, where you pick up the written word of God and encounter Jesus, the living word of God. To read your Bible faithfully, to read your Bible daily, to read your Bible eagerly, to long for the Bible like a newborn baby longs for milk. And I want to encourage you to do that just in three ways. Number one is by showing you the importance of the written word, which is what we've just done briefly from John 1 and 1 John 1. This book is all we have. If this book is all we have, then we should take every advantage of it that we can. So we've already done number one. The second way I want to try to encourage you to read your Bible every day is by giving you just some practical hints for how you might get the most out of it. When you go to the Bible, what should you do? How should you approach it? So I'm going to give you some hints. We're going to do a practice run. We're going to have a miniature quiet time. or I will try to do it out loud for you, and you can just listen. And then thirdly, I want to give you... Uh, as I do every year, just a few suggested plans for how you might daily uh, break up your readings and have a daily plan. So, number one, we already did. Number two, nine practical hints for getting the most out of your Bible reading. Now, if there was ever a time where some of you who don't normally take notes was going to get a pen out of the back of the pew and write these down, this would be the night to do that. And you can take one of the guest cards if you don't have any paper and turn it over and write these nine things down. Nine things that would help you every time you go to read your Bible in your daily quiet time. Number one, make an appointment. Make an appointment. You're going to read the Bible every day? Then set a time every day that you're going to read it. It may not be the same every seven days of the week, but each day when you start the day, you should say, now such and such a time today is going to be when I'm going to read my Bible. Just let me ask you, as you think about that, if you do that with other important events in your day. I bet every one of you does. I bet every one of you, if you have important things that you have to get accomplished, make sure that you somehow set an appointment. That's why we have alarm clocks. That's why some of us have day timers or little calendars or little um, whatever the little computerized things are called. That's why some of you make to-do lists or you have post-it notes that you stick up in various places. If something is important enough, you will make sure that you set aside a time to do it. Is this important? If it is, then set aside a time to do it. If you need to make yourself a note, if you need to have an alarm, if you need to have it written into your calendar, make sure that you plan a time to read the Bible. If you do not plan a time to read the Bible, then lots of other things will push God 
out of your schedule. And then it will be 10 o'clock at night and you'll say, I really should read this, but I'm tired. And you'll either go to bed and not read or you'll just read your chapters as fast as you can and not get anything out of it. So number one, make an appointment. Number two, have a plan. Have a Bible reading plan. And we're going to get to this at the end. But don't just skip around. This is what some people do. They skip around. They just say, well, I feel like reading uh, Psalm 71 today. And so they read Psalm 71. Well, today I feel like reading uh, Romans chapter 5. And they just kind of read whatever comes to mind. Let me just submit to you that if you skip around like that, it'll be really easy to skip a day or a week or a month. When you skip around, it's easier to skip a day because you don't have a plan. You don't have anything that you're trying to stick to. And so if you miss a month, no big deal. I just pick up wherever I want to when the month is over. So pick some plan that you're going to do. Tailor it to how much time you have, how much you feel like you can take in. But have a plan. Number three, begin by praying. Begin by praying. Just four simple things you could pray when you go to your Bible every day. It doesn't have to be anything big and elaborate, but God, give me eyes to see what you're saying. Give me a mind to understand what you're saying. Give me a heart to believe what you're saying. and Give me a will to obey what you command. Just pray those things and sincerely mean them. Just ask God for His help when you go to the Word every day. Could be 30 seconds worth of prayer before you start, but ask God for His help. Don't just assume that you will get it. Fourthly, read slowly. Read slowly. I, I wouldn't have said this, but um, this week, um, Toby and I uh, were reading, actually, Julia and I were reading a children's book that Toby had checked out for her. And in the book, one of the characters was talking about how he reads his Bible. And he says this. When I pray, I talk fast because I am speaking to God. But when I read, I read slow because God is speaking to me. That was very profound for a cartoon character in a children's book. God is speaking to you. So read slow so that you make sure that you hear God. Make sure that you have time to hear God. Now that's going to affect how long Uh, of a time you set aside. If you only set aside five minutes, it's going to be hard to read slow. It's also going to affect how how big of a passage you choose to read. If you only have five minutes to read, then you might pick just a handful of verses and go through a book, uh, just a few verses at a time. If you have a half an hour to read, that'll mean you can take a bigger chunk. But set aside the right amount of time and the right size chunk so that you can read slowly and make sure that you take time to really hear God. So make an appointment, have a plan, begin by praying, read slowly, and then here's where we start to get into some of the, the meat of, uh, of the reading itself. Number five, read for the original meaning. Seek to understand what the passage was saying to those who read it the very first time. You need to remember that the Bible was not written as a kind of a nebulous what does this mean to you kind of a book? That's a bad question. You know, some of you have been in little Bible study groups or Bible reading circles, and you go around the circle and everybody says, well, what does this mean to you? That's a dumb question. People say there's no dumb questions. That's a dumb question. You never go to the Bible and say, what does this mean to you? You just say, what does it mean? What does it mean? First of all, every passage in the Bible has a definite meaning. It's not just a bunch of words that God put on the page and you can kind of pick out and say, well, I think this means that 
such and such. No, it has a meaning. And it has a meaning particularly attached to those people whom it was written originally for. The Bible wasn't written to Americans living in the 21st century. It was written primarily to ancient Jews. And they had a particular religious context that they lived in and a particular social context and a particular political context. And so if you're going to understand what this particular passage is saying, you have to at least ask the question, what would the original readers have understood Paul to be saying or Jeremiah to be saying? You cannot divorce the scriptures from the people who originally wrote and read them. Just to give you a silly example of that, someone might be reading through the Christmas story and they might just be randomly picking out a verse that they want to read and divorcing it from its context and read the verse where the angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to conceive and you're going to have uh, in your womb a son. So it might be some woman who hasn't had a child for a long time. She's like, this is great. God's promising me a son. No, he's not. He's promising Mary a son. What does that mean for you? We'll ask that in a minute. But the first question is, what does it mean? Now, that's a silly example, but there are lots of things like that that we need to be cautious about. What does the verse or what does the passage mean for those who originally read it? And once you figure that out, then you can go on to apply it to yourself, which we'll talk about. But let's just say you're reading a book of the Bible and you're saying, I don't have any idea when this was written or who it was written to or what the point of this whole book is. This is a great resource. Um, It's called... The Holman Quick Source Guide to Understanding the Bible. Some of you have this. Um, it gives you about five pages on every book of the Bible. Simple pages. It's got pictures and maps and graphs and things like that. But with every book of the Bible, it tells you who wrote it, when they wrote it, why they wrote it, what some of the key verses are, what was going on at that time when it was written. And if you were going to read the book of Zechariah, it would help you just to take 15 minutes before you started the book and read through this. And then the rest of the book of Zechariah would make a lot more sense to you because you would know what was going on as Zechariah wrote that book. So read for the original meaning. And if you'd like a copy of this book, then you can let me know and I'll order one for you and you can reimburse the church for it. Number six, once you have the original meaning, apply the original meaning to your modern day situation. So you say the passage meant this for the ancient readers. So what is it saying now to me in 2006 and 2007? What you do there is you say, okay, the ancient readers were in this situation. They were the people of God and they were doing this or this or this or this thing was happening. How is that like my life? What in my life is like that? Or what in world culture is like what I'm reading in the scripture? And then I can apply it to myself. So if you're not the Virgin Mary then the verse, you're going to have a child, doesn't apply to you the same way it does to her. So you read that verse and you say, well, she was going to give birth to God's son. That was a one-time thing. So as I'm reading this passage about her giving birth to God's son, what does this say to me? And one of the obvious implications might be, God's going to do stuff through me too. It's not going to be the same that he did through her, but he's going to do stuff through me, and I need to be like her. I need to be able to say, yes, Lord, whatever you say, I will do. So that's how you apply that passage. So you read the passage and you you ask, is this passage pinpointing any particular sins that are evident in my own life? I'm reading about the sins of the people of Israel. Am I committing any of these same sins? You can also ask, is it giving any commands that apply very clearly to my life? Is it teaching things about God that I need to understand? Now that's something that's always applicable because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Whether you're an ancient Jew or 21st century American, what is this passage saying about God? 
Is it giving promises that I need to lay hold of? What does the passage say to me? So you figure out what it means, then you figure out what it means for you. And then, number seven, you also, as part of this search for the original meaning and the personal application, you make sure that you look for Jesus. Every passage that you read is about Jesus. Somehow it is meant to point you to Jesus. After all, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you go to the law and the prophets thinking to find life there, but the law and the prophets are telling you about me. So Jesus says, wherever you go, it's about me. Sometimes you may read a passage and it may be showing you simply your need for Jesus. It may not say anything about him himself, but it's showing you your need. One example of that is the fall of Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve sinned. They weren't thinking about Jesus. That passage right there doesn't say anything about Jesus, but it reminds us that we need Jesus because we're sinners. The passage also might be in the Old Testament a prophecy about the coming of Jesus. So Micah 5.2 last week, what does it say about Jesus? Well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be born as a real human being, but he's also going to be God. So sometimes you see a prophecy about Jesus. Sometimes you see in the events of the Old Testament a foreshadowing of Jesus. An example of that would be the story of Abraham offering up Isaac on the altar and then in the thicket there's a ram who is sacrificed in the place of Isaac. And that's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has died in our place like the ram died in Isaac's place. Sometimes it's a direct teaching about Jesus like in John 1 that we just read. It's just saying this is Jesus and here's what he did and here's what he said and here's what he's like. Sometimes... It's a passage that teaches you how to respond to Jesus. John 3.16 doesn't really teach us a lot about Jesus himself. It teaches us how we respond to Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What does that say about Jesus? He should be believed on. He should be trusted. So all the scriptures speak about Jesus. So no matter where you are, don't just look to see what the Bible means Uh, for your own situation, but look to what it's saying to you about Jesus. And that will be more relevant than anything else you will find. Number eight, when you finish reading, you should be able to summarize the entire passage in a sentence or two. Summarize the entire passage in a sentence or two. If you've really gotten the passage, if you've really read it slow enough, thought about it, understood the meaning, applied it to yourself, looked for Jesus, then you should be able to summarize what it says about you about God, about Jesus, about sin, and so on when you're finished. So I would just make that a practice. When you finish, try to say to yourself, now what was this saying? Let me see if I can put it briefly. Number nine, pray about what you've read. Sometimes you go to pray and you don't know what to pray about. Well, if you've read your Bible, then you've got at least that whole passage you can pray through. So talk to God about what He's just said to you, particularly the personal applications. So if God has shown you something of his character, you can praise him for that character. God, I thank you that I saw today in your word that you are loving and merciful God and that you are forgiving um, beyond measure. Thank him for that. Thank him for what you learned about Jesus. Praise him for Jesus. Confess sins that are brought to mind by the passage. Ask him for help in obedience where he gives you commands. But whatever you read, just talk to God about it. Say, God, this is what I read. This is where I need help. This is where I'm excited. This is where I'm confused. And pray it through. Now, what I want to do is I want to take a test run through numbers three through nine, okay? Number one was have an appointment, and number two was have a plan. So our appointment time is right now, tonight, 
And our plan uh, is going to be we're going to turn to a passage uh, that I picked. Um, so you could just pretend that it was uh, this was your regular reading time and your regularly scheduled reading was Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Revelation 3, 7 through 13. This is your quiet time passage for today. So what did we say do? We said begin by praying. So I'm just going to pray right now that God would help us just to walk through this passage and understand it together. Father, um, I do thank you for the chance to do this exercise tonight. And God, we want to pray now, not um, just as an example, but uh, really pray to you and ask you to help us to understand Revelation 3, 7 through 13. And God, in doing that, help us to get a better grasp of how we can be productive in our daily times in your word. So give us eyes to see what you say. Give us a mind that is clear enough to understand what you're saying. Give us a heart that believes you and isn't skeptical or hard-hearted. Give us a will that will obey what we turn up in Revelation 3. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Next, this next step is read slowly. So let me just read it to you out loud. And you probably would go even slower than this if you're reading it on your own and maybe read and reread a bit. But we'll just read it through once. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. After you read slowly, the first thing you're going to try to be thinking about is what did this mean for the original readers. So let me just tell you who the original readers of this were. It was a first century church. This book was written at the very end of the first century. It was, as we read in verse 7, the church in this town called Philadelphia. And we don't know much about that church other than what we have here. But we know it's the first century. We know Jesus is writing to a group of people who lived in the city called Philadelphia. And here's what he says to them. He says, listen, I know that you are doing the right things. I have given you an open door that no one can shut. Probably that was some opportunity to serve him that he had opened wide for them. He says, you have a little power. Probably it was a small church, not filled with many mighty, mighty people. They had a little bit of power, but even though they only had a little bit of power, they'd kept his word. And he says, therefore, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to protect you from persecution He says, I'm going to give you respect from your enemies, verse 9. And he says, I'm going to give you a heavenly reward, verse 12. So the summary is this. 
It's a small church that despite its smallness is serving God faithfully and God is going to reward them. Number one, by keeping open the opportunities that they've had. And number two, by protecting them, giving them respect among their enemies and eventually giving them a heavenly reward. Now, that's a brief summary. You might, you might go into more detail uh, than that when you read it on your own. But that's where we'll stop for now. And then you go to the next question. How does this apply then to, to me? The first thing that you need to remember is this is written to a church. This is not written mainly to an individual. It's written to a group of Christians. And so it needs to be applied, first of all, in a church context. So I picked this passage because I read this passage a few days ago in my quiet time. And I read it. And the very first thing that struck me as an application is, Lord, we're a little church. Pleasant Ridge Baptist is a little church. We, compared to a lot of churches around the country and the world, just have a little power. And then the next application was, if we're like these people in our size, are we also like them in the fact that we're keeping your word? Are we keeping your word, God? Or are there things in our church that need definite, immediate prayer and change? And you could, you could think in your quiet time, if you thought of those, you could begin to pray for those. We won't do that now. But that's the immediate personal uh, application that struck me. This church is a lot like our church. And I hope that we are just as faithful as they are. And then I asked, God, for them, you opened a door which no one can shut. Are you doing that for us? Are you giving us opportunities for ministry that we need to make sure that we walk through right away? And again, you could ask what those are and you could begin to think and let the Spirit guide you into that. And then another application question I asked uh, or would ask is, are we living in such a way as to get a reward? Is the community around us someday going to come and finally say, you know what, you guys really are serving God. We didn't think you were. We thought you were these crazy, weird religious people, but you really are serving God. Are we living in such a way that that might happen? Are we living in such a way that we're going to have heavenly reward? Are we just going to get there by the skin of our teeth? So you take what God said to them and you begin to apply it to yourself. And a lot of times you just have to ask questions. A lot of times there might not be a real easy one-to-one correlation, but you begin to ask God to show you things. Then you make sure you say, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus in this? Well, if if you've already been reading the book of Revelation... You remember that he is the one who's writing all these letters. So there are seven letters to seven churches. We're in the sixth one, and Jesus is the author of this letter. If you've been reading Revelation, you realize that Jesus has already said, I walk among all the churches, and I keep an eye on what's going on. I'm there with you. I'm there protecting you. I'm there helping you. And so you say, okay, if we're going to be faithful like they were faithful, we need to remember we have the same Jesus walking among our church as they did. And you remember that he's the Lord. He's the one who opens and no one can shut. It's his power that gives us our power. So you begin to think about Jesus and praise God for Jesus. And then you get to the place where you're about to to finish and close your Bible and begin to pray. And you may say to yourself, okay, let me one last time summarize what this passage was saying. And particularly what it is saying to us uh, as we apply it to ourselves. And you might say something like this, God... Our church, as small as we are, can be just as praiseworthy if we, like the church at Philadelphia, will keep your word. That would be a one-sentence summary of what you learned in that time together. And then you pray through what you read and talk to God about those things. Now, 
these nine things, particularly the last four or five, will be intermingled. You won't necessarily go through choppily like we did tonight. Your prayer may be intermingled with your summary and your summary intermingled with your application and so on. So you don't have to keep this list and post it somewhere, but just get in the habit of doing these things and it will begin to happen for you naturally. So those are some hints. I hope that will help you and encourage you that you really can get uh, some amazing things out of the scriptures if you read them rightly. Now, the third thing I wanted to do is give you some Bible reading plans. We're going to hold off on that tonight uh, simply because I think that many of you um, have seen these before. We give them out every year. There's going to be a list in the bulletin this Sunday. So if you don't already have in mind some, some plan for reading the Bible every day, uh, then check out the bulletin this Sunday. If you're not going to be here this Sunday, you can ask me or email me, and I'll give you some suggestions. So we'll just move past that just to close uh, this way. I want to close just by encouraging you encouraging you that this uh, can be done and that it is a wonderful thing. Some of you, I want to encourage you, uh, who are already reading your Bibles on a daily basis or on, a, on a pretty much a daily basis. And I just want to say to you, keep on. Don't give up. Some days are going to be harder than others. Some, day, some passages are going to be easier to understand than others. But whether you have a great day in the Word or a difficult day in the Word, whether it's a hard passage or an easy passage, whether you feel like God really spoke to you today or you just read words on a page today, don't give up. Just keep going back to the Word and let God bless you for your persistence. And to some of you who haven't started yet, but who might start this year in January, reading God's Word every day, I just want to say to you, go for it. Just go for it. It's not complicated uh, like I say, you don't have to have this list of nine things out in front of you all the time. Uh, just kind of have them ruminating in your heart. You can go at your own pace. You can read two or three chapters a day. You can read a chapter or just a section a day. So it's not a hard thing, but the effort will be rewarded. So if you're not reading your Bible on a regular basis in 2007, commit to yourself mainly that you will do this. You can't save yourself by doing this. So this isn't some, I'm going to do this for you, God, and then you'll really be happy with me. No, do it because you want to hear from God, not because you think you're going to give something to God by reading every day, but because you need to get something from God. And let me just close with 2 Peter 1.19. 2 Peter, like John, or excuse me, the Apostle Peter, like John, was an eyewitness of Jesus. He saw him, he heard him, he touched him, and he says to the people he wrote, listen, we were eyewitnesses. And then in 2 Peter 1.19, he says something strange and very encouraging to me. After saying we were eyewitnesses, he says in 1.19, but we have the prophetic word made more sure. In other words, we were eyewitnesses, but this book is even more sure than that because our eyes can fail us, but God's word never, ever fails us. We have the prophetic word made more sure to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Father, I thank you that you've given us the sure, inerrant, completely sufficient written word that points us to the living word. God, we would do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Lord, let us even now imagine what it would be like if Cincinnati went into a blackout 
and we were desperately looking for candles so that we could see. God, let us be that desperate for your word every day that we might see you and see your son, Jesus. God, if we don't take your word up every day, then we will be in a spiritual blackout much of the time. So help us to long for the pure milk of the word. Help us to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place. We pray this in Jesus' name.